All right, so we continue our study through the uh, Capitol Hill Core Seminar um, subject of uh, unity. And we continue this morning in class seven, which deals with discontentment within the church. Discontentment within the church. So discontentment is something that we all struggle with at one time or another. And discontentment within the church can be particularly difficult at times. So let's do a little exercise first. Raise your hand if you've ever been part of a perfect church. <laughs> you see a couple of hands here? All right. <laughs> For those of you who did raise your hand, we can guarantee that you were not part of a perfect church. You know why? Because you were there. <laughs> you were there. We are here. We recognize that all of us are those who are fallen. We are men of dust and we struggle with sin. We struggle with sin in our own hearts, our own minds, and sin in the world. So we know, you know, in all honesty, that none of us have ever been a, a part of a perfect church. Um, but we know um, at the same time that the uh, body of Christ is Christ's body. And uh, because that's true, because we recognize that, that the church is not perfect, but it is Christ's body, and we can have expectations. And when those expectations are not met or they're disappointed, um, we can find ourselves discontent within the church or with the church. <clears throat> I wonder if you can recall the last time that you were deeply disappointed by another church member, either in this church or another church, and you probably can. Or you think about the last time that you felt that the church let you down, you know, made a promise it didn't keep, or uh, maybe it, it emphasized some aspect of ministry that you felt it was, um, or maybe you had some aspect of ministry that you felt that you want to emphasize that the church wasn't maybe seeing. Maybe it's been months since you joined a church and you still felt like an outsider, right? Been there before. Maybe the congregation was unconcerned about a particular priority that mattered a lot to you. Difficulties like these can easily lead to discontentment. And how we respond to being discontent, or that discontentment can be a very great enemy of the church or it can produce unity as a church, right? <clears throat> Now, it can be something that's used for good, I think even discontentment, if we think about it and work through it rightly, or it can be used as something that damages and sort of takes a hammer to the unity of the church. So we wanna think about how discontentment arises within a church. Um, now at the very beginning here, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how you would say discontentment rises in a church, or it can be damaging to a church. So just question, um, one, how can discontentment arise in a church? And then two, what's a good way that you would say to um, deal with discontentment within a church? All right, so. I can answer with part one. Yeah. I think when people come into church with the mindset of, how is this church gonna meet my needs hmm. and give me what I'm needing church. I think that just starts it with yeah. self and will just breed discontent. Yeah, it's a very good point. 
Yep, so we come into church thinking about what the church can do for us. So the self-seeking mentality. Yep. I, just, I was thinking just is on a heart level, there's some people, they show no matter, we, we could be, you know, like have angels singing the whole thing, and they walked in because there's a, there's a problem in their heart. Mm. There's an unrepentant issue in their heart. There, there's hardness of heart, and they've met, I, there's a way, better way to say it. They made up their mind to be miserable, hmm. and they're going to share that with everybody like yeah. a virus. Yeah, that's true. We're going to talk about that a little bit too. Going from church to church, expecting the churches to change when it's really your heart that needs to change. Robert, I think one of the biggest things that all of us will struggle with, not just the unbelievers coming in, is we think too highly of ourselves. Hmm. Someone lets us down. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So having a humble disposition that as if, well, <clears throat> I am such and such. I can't believe that they would do this to me. Right. So having a, a humble disposition. Yeah. So another hand. And some may be justified. Sure. I, I was thinking as you're asking prayer requests, and something I'm trying to be faithful to pray for this church as, as the broader evangelical world <laughs> seems to be losing its mind. Uh, to put it lightly, <laughs> there are going to be people coming to our doorstep that have been hurt. Yeah, they have yeah. they have experienced the ugly side of church. Hmm. Not nothing of their own doing, but you know, uh, heavy-handed leadership or or, or whatever. And, right. and so they they're going to walk in the door with this guarded. You know, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. That that right. that. And so they they are, they know they need to be at church out of maybe obedience <coughs> or habit, but they're they're showing up and they're they're on, in their heart they're done with church. Yeah, yeah. Lucy, and then we'll continue working through a study. Hmm. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a big one. Yep. Comparing our churches with others. So she said, comparing your church with another church, or comparing church A with church B. Different churches have strengths and weaknesses, but we can become, I think, uh, discontent when we can compare A to B and say, well, why isn't this church like that and that one like this one, right? <clears throat> and that can be like we are we're all longing for right the new heaven new earth where the the church is pure right there's no sin there's no corruption there's no taking advantage or you know heavy-handed leadership um but at times we can expect that now and start to compare and wonder why the church doesn't look like it will in the new heaven and new earth but let's let's continue thinking through this together so <clears throat> like all adversity we know that God gives us the grace to work through discontentment, and he intends it to serve his glory and our good. So how can we promote unity when we encounter discontentment in the church? This is what we'll be thinking about today. Before we go further, let me uh, give a, a, a definitional clarity for what I mean when I say uh, unity and discontentment. So today's class isn't going to address how we should respond to clear sin in the church. We're not talking about clear sin. Um, Lord willing, we'll consider that topic later on when we think about church discipline. Uh, but today's class specifically will address discontentment that comes from disagreement with 
leadership and each other. So we'll cover, <clears throat> um, I'm sorry, this class won't uh, think about disagreement with leadership, we'll cover that later, but it'll think about discontentment with each other and with uh, maybe the way the church is, it functions, right? So on a, on a larger scale. <clears throat> so uh, today's, in today's class, will be sort of, a, sort of like a mirror of last week's class, if you, if you remember that, where we thought about how we can grow in unity together through our love for each other. So today we'll consider how to respond to aspects of our church that are not necessarily sinful, yet it can be a cause of our unhappiness. It's not sinful necessarily, but it can cause us to be unhappy, and thus a potential source of disunity or disagreement. And it's worth pointing out that this discontentment is, it isn't always bad, right? It, it isn't always um, something that the Lord looks on with displeasure. Um, Maybe you've been disappointed in a church because they don't seem to give much regard to evangelism or other things in church. That could be a godly discontentment, right? But we still want to think through how we respond to that. How do we respond to um, these things that cause us unhappiness? So we'll begin by examining the negative effect that discontentment can have on a church. Then we'll think through some ideas of how we should deal with discontentment in a God-honoring way. And then we'll consider two specific categories of discontentment. Um, through this, you know, my prayer, and I hope our prayer, is that we will become better equipped to work for the unity um, of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as we are commanded to do in Ephesians. One of the ones, ways that we do this is to think through these different ideas in the church and in our own hearts. So... First, in what ways can discontentment affect church unity? That's Roman numeral number two on your sheet. Bitter fruit from a poor response to discontentment. We might define discontentment as a longing for something better than the present situation. There can be godly discontentment. We know for a fact that the world is broken by sin and um, it should be better. We recognize that. But there can be sinful discontentment where we refuse to trust God's goodness and extend gratitude for his provision, but instead we demand more than he has ordained. Also, even if our discontentment is godly, we can still put our hope in circumstances rather than in God to make it better. And discontentment, even when spurred by godly desires, can bear bitter fruit if we respond to it in the wrong way. So let's look at three ways in which discontentment, if not handled properly, can harm the witness of the church. So one, discontentment can lead to complaining and grumbling. Paul warns us back uh, in the book of Philippians to do all things without grumbling or disputing, um, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as light, lights in the world. Philippians 2, 14 to 15. So don't um, grumble or murmur or dispute, complain in anything ever is what scripture is saying. Now, if you were in our prayer meeting this morning, we talked a little bit about uh, the complaint of Psalm 142 to 
where the psalmist lays his complaint. He says, I bring my complaint before the Lord. And Philippians 2, which says, do everything without grumbling or complaining, <clears throat> or grumbling or disputing is what it, what it says. Um, those are two different types of complaint and two different phrases used for them in scripture. One is in Psalm 142 um, and in Numbers 11, a lament of uh, complaining, going to the Lord trustingly that he can provide and will provide what we need. The other is a grumbling and a complaining that is distrusting. It's what, mo it's what uh, the people of Israel did throughout the Old Testament over and over and over and over, which Paul says, don't do. Um, don't uh, disbelieve, don't distrust, right? So even our complaining scripture can be a complaining that is a trusting complaining that God hears and doesn't look down upon with, with uh, disfavor or displeasure. But don't grumble, don't dispute in anything. So part of the way in which our witness should be compelling to the world around us is that we don't complain. We don't grumble, we don't dispute. When we don't properly address discontentment, it leads to grumbling. We damage one of the characteristics that makes us distinct as Christians. We harm the church's witness. Have you considered that um, disputing and grumbling is a witness to the world? That's maybe something that doesn't come to mind often. You know, we, we want to be light shining in dark places. We want to be sh uh, spreading the gospel and sharing God's word and speaking through scripture wisely and carefully. But you ever consider that maybe your grumbling is something that unbelievers are looking at and um, affecting them negatively as they think about the church, right? That, that's a possibility. <clears throat> I was just going to mention the two different contexts when you're talking about like lamenting God in a way and then this being in the context of in front of people and it separating us and being a light to other people. Um, so especially if you're grumbling about and speaking about other things outside, but when you start talking bad about like your church to mm. the unbelievers yeah. and how that looks to them, yeah, yeah. they go, man, <clears throat> you're talking that bad, but it makes me want to go and, and check it out. Yeah, amen, amen. Yep, and we'll, we'll think through that. You know, because at times we do have a, we have a, a complaint, a justified um, complaint, but how we handle that, and I think to your point, uh, we, we're uh, grumbling against the church to those, even, you know, amongst ourselves even, but to those even in the world, um, what that says about the church, because we handle it differently, yeah. right? <clears throat> All right, two, discontentment can lead to discord. When we're unhappy with something, we're tempted to talk about it, right? We're tempted to criticize. We want to, and I think we can all identify with this, <clears throat> we want to rally support to try and get people to see things from our viewpoint, right? So we use language in scripture, when the, like when the scripture says, the whole town came out to see this thing happening. We say, everybody hates that this is happening in the church. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> or, you know, so we, we understand that that, that happens at times. We, we've all, I think, probably done that or been a witness to it. No matter the virtue of our initial concern, this type of behavior can quickly cause factions and dissension within the church. Something that Paul lists alongside in Galatians 5.20, um, idolatry, witchcraft, fits of rage when he writes about the acts of the sinful nature. He puts dissension right alongside those. 
And we recognize sometimes things we say and do can promote dissension. So we have to be careful to address discontentment um, in the right way uh, because discord can be produced quickly. <clears throat> Third, discontentment distracts from what really matters. As individuals and as a church, our charge is to make the most of every opportunity, make the best use of the time, Ephesians 5.16. But discontentment consumes our time and attention and zaps our energy. It monopolizes the time and attention of our brothers and sisters, our elders and staff, and it can distract from what really matters. So this is some of the bitter fruit that discontentment can bear in our life together as a church. But remember that discontentment can strengthen the body as well when we respond in the way that is godly, when we submit to each other for the sake of Christ and do the hard work of love, we can bring great glory to God even in those circumstances. So we show that our unity doesn't rest on perfect agreement or compatible personalities, but on shared, the shared hope and satisfaction in Christ. That is very important, right? Not on perfect agreement, not on compatible personalities, but on the shared hope that we have in Christ. <clears throat> so when we think about um, our discontentment, we want to see uh, in action a striving for unity. So let's think about ways that we can address discontentment in a God-glorifying way. So Roman numeral number three on your handout. Addressing discontentment in general. How should we address discontentment? So I'll offer four suggestions, but these aren't a list of uh, to-dos or formula. Um, it, as so much as it is something that we just want to think through and have these categories in mind when we work through our own feelings and, uh, of discontentment. As with any other area of the Christian life, what we want ultimately isn't a list of action steps, but to understand how the gospel of God's grace transforms how we respond. So we want to be able to say with Paul, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Man. Has anybody got, got there yet? <laughs> you learn in every situation how to be content? Man, pray for me. I'd be struggling. <laughs> so these are four ways then of applying the good news of God's patience to us um, when we think about discontentment. A, pray for God's mercy. First and foremost, the gospel tells us that we are unable to do anything of value in our own strength and that includes responding rightly to discontentment. It doesn't come naturally, right? So remember Psalm 121, one to two. I lift up my eyes from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. So our first guideline is to pray and to cry out for God's mercy. It's foolish to think that we're mature enough to address discontentment under our own power. So when something about the church or someone in the church rubs us the wrong way, you're about to enter into a spiritual battle. I'm not sure if you think about it like that, but it's true. Satan wants to distract us from entrusting ourselves to God who judges justly by our own bitterness, pride, and revenge. So we can justify giving into temptation when we feel that we're in the right, right? So 
your first line of defense against discontentment is a pleading, Lord, please help me. Give me help and grace and mercy to think through this rightly, to feel rightly about this, right? We don't just want to sort of, uh, by default, go to sort of reasoning, or he did this, I did that, he did this on that day, and I did this, and then we sort of want to work through it to see, okay, he comes out with three points, but I come out with four, I'm in the right, and then we go and then we attack the person, right? So our first line of defense is, Lord, help me. You know what that does for the heart? It injects humility and patience. It helps us to recognize that we don't have everything we need to work through this rightly. Ask for help and mercy. So when you encounter discontentment, first pray. We need to pray. You are waging war that you can't win on your own. Pray that God gives you a discerning heart and wisdom through his word. Pray that God would identify any sinful desires in your own heart and replace them. Pray that he would fill your heart with love for Christ, that we would honor God more, and that we can actually honor God more if we less often try fixing the things ourselves um, rather than with humble prayer and wisdom and discernment and care and trusting them to the Lord. Right, that doesn't mean that you don't do anything which we'll talk about, but as a first disposition, prayer. Lord, give me help. B, examine your desires, confess and repent of those that are sinful. Second, when we think about discontentment, we want to examine our own heart and understand the desires at the root of our own discontentment. So we don't want to assume that when we have uh, some type of discontentment or trouble that we are in the right. Uh, we want to consider you could be wrong. You could, this could be a, bl a blind spot for you. That's maybe something you aren't considering, right? I think that's a humble disposition to take. And then where there is sin, we must confess it. Where are there desires that should be satisfied in Christ, but that we're wrongly seeking to satisfy in comfort or in the respect that we feel like we ought to get from others? James 4 says to us, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So James gets right to the connection between discontentment and circumstances. And he sort of cuts at that. We often feel discontent because we're, we've put our hope in our circumstances rather than in God. But circumstances, what? They change. They are mutable. But God doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is immutable. So if there is a fight or quarrel, then there are ungodly desires in our hearts in some way, in some area, that need to be dealt with. And the challenge is, I think for us at that point, stopping examining yourself and taking the time to deal with whatever that is. I think that's the part that we probably easily overlook. Because when, we're, when we feel passionate about something and we feel, when we feel we're on the right, 
we want to be justified immediately, then and there. And we can forget or just overstep, okay, stopping, thinking, meditating, really reaching down in our hearts and doing the, a healthy self-examination. Reach down in there, feel around, see what's there. Why do I feel like this about that? Sit, think, work through that. Why do I feel like this about that? Work through it. You may be justified in the end. I'm not saying that that's not the case, but take the time to work through it, to examine your own heart in that way. It's good and healthy for you. And I think it gives you a good um, litmus test for your own spirituality at times. Okay, so <clears throat> another example. Maybe you're unhappy because some people are better friends with a popular member than you are. Or, or a particular member. Um, what's at the root of that discontentment? Is it because you feel that that friendship conveys uh, special status that you covet? Is it because you're jealous of a friendship that seems so close and you wanna, you wanna have that closeness as well with that specific person? Ask God to identify sin in your own heart and confess it as sin. Think hard about the root problem. What are the desires behind the emotions of discontentment? Are you putting your hope in people's approval rather than in Christ's provision for you? The gospel declares that God's approval for you in Christ is sufficient. Are you frustrated that seemingly no one in the church understands your struggles and your desires of your heart, um, and it's hard for you and you don't feel heard? The gospel declares that God sees you he knows you, forgives you, and guides you. Are you discontent because you feel you deserve better treatment than you've received? Remember the gospel's call to lay down your life and all your rights for the sake of Christ. All right, so having a humble disposition. Um, jumping down, C on your handout. See other believers the way that God does. Third, we should strive to see the church and everyone in it the way that God does. This means that we should view others through lenses of love, not disappointment or suspicion, right? Um, Spurgeon, in his lectures to my students, let's see if I remember the quote, he said, um, the spirit of suspicion, he says, more have made from their spirit of suspicion um, enemies than have made friends. And more, more friends have been made into enemies because of our own spirit of suspicion. So there's this, you know, you're, you're wondering, well, why did, they, why did she say that? And what does she mean? And why did he respond that way? What's that facial expression that he just made? Maybe he had something bad for breakfast and he just really has to go to the restaurant. Maybe his kids irritated him and he's working through it in his own heart before he comes into corporate worship. Maybe she was thinking about something in her own head and just happened to make a face and you happened to walk by and now your Lord's day is ruined because this particular person made a face at you. <laughs> that it wasn't at you. Just try to put to death the spirit of suspicion. Don't approach people or have in your mind a disposition of disappointment or suspicion. It's not healthy for your own heart or for the unity which we're thinking about. Again, the gospel is crucial here. It reminds us that in Christ, God has lavished his riches of forgiveness on us despite our own sin. So 
as we grow in an understanding of the depth of the grace of God to us, we ought to be filled with gratitude. And we can begin to see others the way he sees them as treasured saints whom he has washed, cleansed, and renewed. They're not your enemies, your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're not your enemies, right? They are co-heirs with you of the grace of life. I understand in that context, he's talking about the, the wife or the husband. But if that's true for the wife, the husband, it's true for every believer. They're co-heirs with us of the grace of life, right? So we have to understand this, and I think misunderstanding this can spur on suspicion and at times a hate we have for one another um, and again we're, I'm, we're, I'm trying to focus in on the local church here but we've seen and heard and experienced just widely just within the broader evangelical church that we're forgetting that our brothers and sisters are those for whom Christ died right and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. They have become the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. And St. Clair Ferguson says, and I think he may be right on this, to speak against them in a, a way that is uh, demeaning their character or um, uh, speaking of them in a way that causes others to view them with suspicion, he says, can be borderline on the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit because this person is one in which the Holy Spirit dwells and he has inhabited them and he is uh, conforming them more to the image of Christ. And so we, we have to view each other the right way, not in suspicion or disappointment, but as fellow believers in Christ. Um, <clears throat> so that's just the reality of life um, as we ought to understand it, that we are believers in Christ. Life under the sun, we experience failures from each other um, within our own selves and within our relationships. But we understand that because of Christ's sacrifice, God doesn't throw us to the wind or give up on us. Neither should we do that with each other, no matter how hard that may be. There are times or relationships where you just feel like there's no way that this can be reconciled. This is beyond um, reconciliation, but that's not true, right? If Christ has died for that person, then you'll, you'll, be, you'll spend eternity with that person, right? So I hope that informs how we think about that. All right, continuing. How do we grow in viewing others, not from a selfish, discontented perspective, but from God's vantage point? A couple simple ideas. One, first, pray for others and love them in concrete ways. So this is just something practically to, to think through. When you're unhappy with someone in the church, pray for that person. Pray that God would prosper their desire for himself. Pray that God would help you to understand the value that they bear as his children. They are fellow heirs with you again of the grace of life. 1 Peter 3, 7. And express that concern and other forms of service to them. Send them an encouraging email or provide for their physical need in some way. Choosing to love someone at an extremely practical level can be one of the best ways to soften our hearts in the midst of discontentedness. Now, <clears throat> you might be thinking, but if my heart is saying negative things inside while I say and do encouraging things outside, what's your thought? Hypocrite. I'm being a hypocrite, right? I can't do that. I don't want to be a hypocrite. But I don't think that is hypocrisy. 
disciplining yourself to work toward the good of another, even when your feelings are inclined elsewhere, and that's the point, your feelings are inclined elsewhere, the commands of scripture and the Holy Spirit is inclined elsewhere, and you are submitting to one over the other, right? So when our feelings are inclined to this way, it's, and we want to obey the spirit, that's part of what it means to, I think, persevere in love as we think through how to serve this person who I just, I'm not getting along with right now. We're not seeing eye to eye. Every time we talk, I walk away offended. I'm just, I'm really having, you know, struggles here. Pray for them. Go up to them and ask them how you can pray for them. And then actually pray for them. And uh, show your love uh, for them. I think that's Christian maturity. Not hypocrisy, but Christian maturity. Romans 12, 20 to 21. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, so this is what this doesn't mean. So heap burning coals on his head is not, that, that's not supposed to be a, a punishment to the person. How do we know that? Because if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? A good thing. So that can't lead to the conclusion of, you're going to keep burning coals on his head, and he's going to feel it, and it's going to be painful. That's the opposite of what he's saying here. He's quoting Proverbs, and I think in Proverbs that says almost the same thing. Um, I think it's pointing back to Isaiah 6, when the seraphim are flying to and fro, and he comes to um, Isaiah, and he has the, the burning coals, and he touches his lips, and he says what? This has touched your lips. Your sin has been taken away. I think that's what's happening here. It's, it's a, a good thing. You're serving this person, and it's a picture of, I think, pardon. Not that you can forgive their sin. That's not the point. But that you have a disposition of forgiveness towards them, and therefore, love. <clears throat> okay? Um, yeah, this is what I was referring to. I just sort of said it instead of read it. So the one uh, seraphim he flew, uh, having in his hand burning coals that he had taken with tongues from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. Um, I think Paul is referring back to Proverbs, and Proverbs is pointing to Isaiah 6. I could be wrong, but I think I'm right. <laughs> Two, second, <clears throat> consider how much other people value or of value to God. In Philippians, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Why should you consider another church member as more significant than yourself? Is it because they are uh, more capable or more godly than you? No. Is it because that they are Christ's possession, that he is bought with his blood, they are precious in his sight? Yes. Right? Christ is not ashamed to call them brothers, Hebrews 2.11 says. For he who, sac- who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. 
you can be ashamed to call somebody a brother who Christ is not ashamed to call a brother. Um, this, this ought to inform how we think about each other. The spirit of Christ dwells in them and has taken up residence in that brother or sister. Much selfish discontentment begins because we're evaluating the worth of others um, based off of us looking at ourselves and looking at them and saying, well, I think ultimately, I think at heart we're saying, I think I'm more valuable. I think I'm more worthy. We'll never say that, but at times we treat others in that way. Okay, Um, fourth, speak in love. How you choose to share the specifics of your discontentment with others affects whether that discontentment spreads or subsides. So what should you talk about and how should you talk about it? Let me give a few suggestions. One, it's a good practice to work through those things we've, uh, we've talked about so far, prayer and examining our desires before God, before you speak to someone else about that specific area of unhappiness. Again, that doesn't mean that we can't talk to each other and try to get counsel, but work through that in your own heart first. If something happens and it makes you discontent or unhappy, work through it first before you go and say, man, this is what happened today, or this person said this, um, because that can breed uh, further discontentment. Two, when you think it's good to talk with someone, talk constructively about how you two can better serve the church. Simply using a conversation to let off steam or seek affirmation for your discontentment will likely spread that discontentment rather than killing it. Right? So think through even what I should say. Proverbs talks about fitting words in the proper time. How should I word this? What should I say? Um, that's, that's wise for us to do. The temptation to sin and anger can be very strong and something against which we should guard ourselves. Three, recognize your responsibility as a church member. We'll talk more about this in a couple weeks, Lord willing. But suffice it to say that Jesus in Matthew 18 lays out very clear steps for dealing with sin in the church. And the first step is to confront the individual uh, that you suspect of sin Uh, There are exceptions, I think, but much of the time, if we're talking with anyone else about that sin before we talk to that person, then you could be potentially acting in gossip and in slander. And we want to be mindful of that. Four, be careful how to speak about the issue, how you speak about the issue publicly. Some things in the church are unclear and unimportant. Other things in the church are important and unclear. If something is both important and clear, the divinity of Christ, the authority of scripture, then speaking publicly can potentially be a good thing. And I think it's important to get counsel even in those situations. But it's not, uh, but if it's not in that category of both serious and clear from scripture, we should probably not just speak publicly about it, um, but instead, think through it quietly in our own hearts, work through it, and seek counsel from each other and from your elders privately. So again, four guidelines for addressing contentment. Pray, understand your desire, and repent of any sin. See others the way that God sees them, and speak in love. Okay? 
So um, let's think about what do I have here? I have more content than I'll get to, but we'll just keep going and stop at time. So we want to think about specific areas of discontentment. <clears throat> In our remaining time together, I like to uh, look at some more practical ways in our discussion of how we can address three common situations in the church that cause discontentment. So one, the church isn't meeting my needs. I think Anna or Roger said this earlier. One specific area of discontentment we can often feel is that the church isn't meeting our needs. However common this might be, we need to recognize it for what it actually is. It's a selfish demand that the church serve me. But we've talked about this already a little bit and about the purpose of the church. It's not ultimately to surround us with social relationships in which we find fulfillment. The ultimate purpose is to glorify God by displaying his power in a community of united, loving believers who maybe don't talk like each other, don't look like each other, don't think like each other in some areas, but it displays the power of God. So to fight this form of discontentment, we need to learn that we're not the most important thing in the church. God is. <clears throat> Philippians 1.25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Not for my own selfish gain, but for your progress and joy in the faith. Two, the church has disappointed my expectations for fellowship and growth. I think this is probably another big one. We might desire to serve the church self selflessly, but still feel a lingering disappointment with the way that things are in a church. A lack of fellowship or feeling like you don't belong or a lack of growth. Maybe you've been a member at, let's just say this church for a while, and you're still finding it hard to connect with people and to make good friends. Maybe you wanna serve, but no one seems to recognize it. Or you can't serve in the way that you feel most gifted to serve. Maybe you're frustrated with the lack of singles or the lack of marries or the overall culture of the church. How do you deal with that kind of discontentment? Well, following the pattern we established earlier, we should approach situations with prayer first. We should search our hearts to determine whether these feelings stem from selfish or ungodly desires. We should ask the hard questions. Are there things I need to do differently to experience better fellowship in the church or take advantage of the opportunities to grow? We should ask that, ask that of ourselves and of others that we know that we can trust. So considering maybe this is an area where I need to step out and do this. You know, maybe I can step out and do that. Maybe I can express to this certain person, I want to serve in this ministry in this way or that way, um, rather than allowing it to become an area of discontentment. Um, that might involve uh, talking to a pastor to get his thoughts on what you should do. If you're struggling to make relationships, um, we can say that that's, you're probably not the only one in the church struggling to make relationships, if you are probably many, many others who are struggling in that same area. Not all of us are as um, outgoing or extroverted as others. Some of us are more introverted and we struggle in that way. 
Um, it's okay to think through that and work through it and seek counsel and help. Um, <clears throat> adding one more thing here. Much of this battle um, entails our training our minds to understand the benefits and the blessing that God has given us in his kindness um, rather than what he maybe hasn't in that season. So our discontentment at times will cause us to get so familiar with God's divine blessing and provisions that he has given us so that we start to take it for granted. It gets old and we simply want something new. In those seasons, pray that God would train you to see all of his blessings that he has given to the church. And I think that will affect our heart attitude in certain areas of discontentment. Okay? So we are nearing our closing time here. Just one more thing. Discontentment or dislike of church members causing discontentment. Another cause for discontentment is simply dislike of other church members. Maybe it's an issue of envy or rivalry. Maybe you resent the blessings that God has given to this person or someone else. Or maybe it's a basic feeling of discomfort. Someone behaves in a way that is just way different from what you're used to. Or someone works for an organization that you can't understand why they would ever work for them. Or they have a political view that you hate. How do you work through these areas of discontentment? Again, let's follow the pattern. Pray that God would search and expose your own heart, confess any sin, and seek forgiveness. Recognize that a desire to love someone um, is right and good and ought to be cultivated. We want to fan that into flame. We don't want to brush aside that person or their value. When it is, when is the last time, so a uh, question for you, that you pray for somebody that you don't like? That you just, you, you're just not seeing eye to eye. But you take the time, you gather <laughs> your thoughts, your feelings, and you pray for that person. You genuinely pray for their well-being. That's good for the heart. It's sanctifying. Consider these individuals. Though broken and imperfect, today they are being transformed and conformed to the image of Christ's likeness in an ever-increasing glory. Uh, they're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So, although loving them at that time may be uncomfortable and it can be easy to just sort of cast them aside, you know, we can sort of step around them to get to the people we really want to talk to. Um, we've all maybe dealt with this. Um, the conclusion is that the Lord has died for this person, is sanctifying them, and with wisdom, prayer, counsel, um, and uh, working through our own hearts, we can, I think, come to a reconciliation. If it's not this week, or next month, or next year, having that heart disposition helps us to move in the right direction. Okay? In conclusion, I'm closing with this, I promise. At the root of discontentment is the idea that things would be better if some person or situation would simply change. But that is precisely why we must put our hope in God and not in our circumstances. So, praise God that we don't have to cling uh, to the weak and temporary hopes of this world, right? We have the hope of the world to come. We have the hope of sanctification. He has given us himself as our anchor. He is the sovereign one over 
who reigns over our circumstances, even our relationships, right? He has, he was sovereign over um, Noah when he was being mocked, over Joseph when he was in a pit, over Israel when they were in slavery, over David when he was hunted and sought after to be killed, over Christ when he was on the cross. God is sovereign. His goodness always prevails and him, in him, we can find joy and true contentment even in the midst of our struggles with uh, discontentment. People, uh, the nature of the church, the culture of the church, whatever it is, the Lord can be trusted because he cares for our unity more than we do, right? And we're given scripture that shows us this. Uh, Strive to preserve the unity, right? That means put your hands to the labor of preserving the unity. We don't cause it, if we have union with Christ, we are united. That's it. <laughs> we're indwelled by the Spirit. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Now we strive to preserve it, right? Prayer, confession of sin, and in practical ways. Okay, let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks for your holy word. We can look to your word for counsel, for wisdom. Your word tell us, tells us that you guide us with your right hand. You counsel us. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and help and grace in these areas and our own hearts individually as we struggle with discontentment um, in the church with each other. Um, this is no temptation has overtaken any of us in this area that is uncommon to men. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us as a body, as the local church here at FBC, even to think through these things, to pray through them, and to entrust ourselves to you. And as we take steps forward, even for reconciliation or serving one another when it's hard, we pray that you would give us help and that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. amen.